Well, good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. My name is Aaron Lee Pastor. I'm so happy you guys are here today. And so we are starting a new series that you heard. I saw Cassie let you know, our Difference Maker uh, series. Um, and so uh, we'll get into that right away. And so uh, the reason I decided to do this series before Easter is uh, we want to prepare ourselves to be able to share the great news of what Jesus has done. Right? We talk about being a church that uh, we want to be disciples of Jesus that uh, build disciples. And part of that, the vision is what Christ has done is make sure that everybody in our community gets to know who Christ is, what God has done for us, the good news of the gospel. We want to make sure that everybody who lives here has the opportunity to know the value that they have in Christ's kingdom, how they can receive forgiveness and, and uh, how they can find a church family who will love them and help them grow in faith. Well, in order to do that, we need to make sure that we are prepared, that we understand the gospel ourselves and are having that working out in our lives. And so um, one of the things that uh, uh, I've, in preparation for this uh, series, I did some research into the culture and, and kind of what's the state of uh, our country and things like this. And Barna has got some really good uh, research out there on that Pew Institute as well. And one of the things I, I thought was interesting as I was reading about different generations and the different culture that they have, and it, it struck me that we have Generation X, and then there was Generation Y, and now we've got Generation Z. And I thought, how interesting is it that these generations just have letters now, right? There's like no identity. I know we're calling some millennials or whatever, but it seems like this is aimless, in fact, the research is showing that really a lot of our generations are losing identity and not really knowing what it is that we're living for. There's this thing called nihilism. It's a, it's a philosophy that uh, was uh, really made popular uh, you know, a while back, 1800s, um, a, a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche uh, really popularized. But it's the idea that nothing matters. And it begins with this concept that, that anything beyond what is here and now. And we have stepped from, in our culture, United States, we have gone from a Christian culture now into a post-Christian culture. And so nihilism amongst our younger generations is on the rise. In fact, a majority of our youngest generation right now subscribe to that, which no surprise then, the consequences of that is we see more depression. Depression is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Drug abuse is on the rise. And so we find that our world and our society seems to be hungry and hurting. And there's something more for them. In fact, it reminds me of this song when I was uh, uh, early on. I was a youth pastor in the early 2000s. There was this band called Switchfoot, and uh, they had this song. It was real popular, a great guitar riff on it that uh, was uh, called, We Were Meant to Live for So Much More. And I love the message of that song. It talked about how we get so busy in making ourselves comfortably numb in the living of life so that we don't have to think about the fact that most of us have nothing to live for. But there's something deep inside of us, this cry, this, this, this fact that, that we have eternity that was crafted into our hearts. There's a knowledge amongst all people that we were meant for something more. That's why nihilism hurts. It doesn't fit. It's like putting on a pair of shoes that are the wrong kind of shoe. It's like putting on a pair of horseshoes. We were never meant to fit in them. You see, there's something that we were meant to live for, something so much more than what we were being told we meant to live for, something so much more than right now so many in our culture believe is all there is. 
In the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about that, the difference, the difference that we find in Christ, the difference that Christ has in us, and the call that we have to follow Him and be the difference maker. Now, for this series, there's going to be one verse that we're going to memorize. This week, I want you to memorize it. Next week, we're going to talk about how we can use it to help bring hope and life into people's lives. And that verse is Romans 6.23. It's a verse that every Christian should know. It pretty much is the gospel in one verse. And it's a, it's a powerful thing, a powerful truth. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that you have that, if you have your Bibles, please open them up. Two, Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, starting Romans 1. If you have one of the Bibles that you have at the church, it's going to be on page 782. If you forgot your Bible today or you need a Bible, don't worry about it. We've got plenty of them in the back there by the sound booth. Uh, please help yourself to one of those. And if you need a Bible, please keep it. It'll be our gift to you. Now, when you turn to Romans, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And the reason he wrote it is that the church in Rome was starting to grow, but they hadn't had an apostle there yet, and the New Testament was still being written. And so Christian doctrine was one of those things that was beginning to, to make its way through the kingdom and make, or through the empire. And uh, he wrote this book for the inspiration of the Holy Church, or the Holy Spirit, to make sure that the church would understand what it, our doctrine is. <laughs> what is our faith all about? And, uh, and so that's where he, he begins with. And so in this book of Romans really kind of explains what is our faith, what's the foundation of our faith, how do we live our faith, and what is the hope of our faith. And so uh, we begin in this, uh, verse 16 and 17, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the very foundation of, of our thing. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's important to recognize at the very beginning of Christian doctrine, the foundation and the starting point of all of everything that we believe. The gospel makes a difference. It is the difference maker for us. Well, the gospel, what is it? It literally means good news. That's what it means. In a world where we find increasing levels of depression and suicide and addiction and all kinds of other forms of, of discomfort and social dis-ease, our world needs good news. And God has given it to us. Aren't you glad that we have a gospel? That God didn't give us just bad news. That our faith isn't built upon something that is harsh or, or rough or, or discouraging. That our faith is, is built upon something that is truly good. I mean, that's pretty fantastic. And my, my journey to faith as I, as I tested other religions and practiced them before I finally got to Christianity and recognized the truth that it has and therein, I will tell you that not all faiths have this. In fact, many faiths have bad news. In fact, some faiths teach you crazy things like life is pain, and the purpose of everything is to cease existing. That's the best thing. It's called nirvana. That's their good news, is that you can stop existing. This is not the truth of God. We have something so much better, and it's true. 
Before we can get to the good news, as Paul writes, he says everything's about good news. It starts with good news. But before he gets into the good news, we have to recognize why we need good news. And Romans chapter 1 begins with some pretty harsh realities that we all pretty much recognize. And the first reality is that we have is that humanity is wicked. We are wicked as far as a people. Our moral compass is askew, isn't it? Right? People think that we're doing right, but we do what is wrong. Original sin is where it all began. That was the, the first thing. In Genesis 3, 5, when we find the first sin, this was the temptation. The enemy said, for God knows that when you eat from it, that's the true, um, the fruit from the true of, tree of uh, good and evil, right? Knowledge of good and evil. It says, for when God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was a temptation. Not so much to, to uh, become superhuman, but to know good and evil. What's it talking about? Creating morals. Adam and Eve already knew right from wrong. I mean, they knew it was wrong to touch that. We don't even want to go there. They knew it was wrong. The thing was, before they ate from that fruit, everyone agreed with God that it was wrong. We shouldn't do it. The temptation was to be like God. And how to be like God? No good and evil. That's to create their own standards, our own ethics, our own morals, apart from God. It was to detach our moral compass apart from the reality in which He's created. To be able to set our own true north apart from what He thinks or what God says is true. And so we've done that. As humanity, all of our moral compasses are askew, right? Every single one of us thinks we knows what is right. And how can that possibly be so? I mean, think about how many fights you've had with people where you know you're right, and they think they are right. Isn't that how most fights really happen? Not between one person that knows they're in the wrong, and just wants to be evil and conniving. It's usually between two people who definitely believe in the rightness of their own cause, going to war. Most wars are fought between two white hats. That's just how it happens. And so we find that as people, as we detach from God and we start setting our own moral compasses and we start to follow our hearts and say what we think is right and wrong, we end up, it says in Romans 1.20, this is what it 121, actually, it says, although they knew God, that's humanity, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts of to sexual impurity and the degrading in their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned, abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, they didn't think that it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they did what they ought not to be done. They have been filled 
with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Isn't that a description of our society? When we look into the world, isn't that a description of the world? When you turn on the news at night and you see nightly news, isn't it just a display of depravity run amok in every corner of the globe? That we have groups and peoples all thinking that we are right and we are righteous, perpetrating the most evil horrors upon other people, all in the name of our arrogance to say we know what is best. I find it interesting that two places in Scripture that we have some of the greatest judgments of God demonstrated and acted upon earth, we find the flood and we find Sodom and Gomorrah. And before both of those acts of judgment, it's said in Scripture that the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. That the evil world, were, and, and, in the, uh, and before the flood, it says that everyone's thoughts were evil all the time, and yet they thought that they were righteous. In their arrogance, the world before the flood put its, said to God, we know what is right, not you. And they called what God said was good, evil, and they called and they believed what God said was evil, was good. They believed it in their hearts. They thought they were so righteous, so moral, irreconcilable. And God allowed the earth to try starting again. And yet we find again with Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities famed and known for their wickedness, the people in the city thought that they were highly, highly moral. In fact, the, the, the evidence of the, uh, where we have Sodom and Gomorrah, and you see the ruins there, there are, there are shrines and, and uh, sphinxes, and it was a religious society. It wasn't that the people in either of those two places were running around thinking that they were evil. They thought that they knew better than God. They sought a righteousness apart from God, and it led to horrible acts, and it still does today. Godless morality always, always leads to depravity every single time because our moral compass is wrong. It's pointing us in the wrong direction. Did you see it said he gave them over to the wrong thinking, but also to depraved hearts, the darkening of their hearts? One of the worst pieces of advice you can possibly give someone is to follow your heart your heart will lead you to death every single time. It's not a good compass. Not why God gave it to us. Our hearts will always deceive us. Our morality will always deceive us. We are somehow, we have become depraved and we think that somehow we know what is best. You just know what is right. This is the way humanity is. That's why you go from culture to culture throughout the entire globe and you will find that you will have the same kind of things that people struggle with and the same kind of depravity. It's not a cultural issue. It's a human heart issue. Every single society, they deal with things like uh, greed and corruption and lust, right? Abuses of power and deception. These aren't things that are culturally imposed upon people. It's something that's in us that works out in the cultures we make in our own images, 
Humanity doesn't have the answer. I think we have to begin with the fact that on our own, we make a mess of the world. That's kind of one of the points I think God is making by allowing us to hijack this world from Him. When we took the world and Adam and Eve said, we're going to do it our way, God said, fine, let's see how well it goes. When the world has been run according to our morals and ethics, when our families are run according to our morals and ethics, how well does it turn out? Don't most of us bear the scars of, of this? But you know what? Before we get too judgmental and we look out into the rest of the world and say, oh, how evil and awful they are, we. What it says in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, you, you, therefore, have no excuse. This was written to Christians, by the way. This is not just us pointing the finger at the rest of society and the world and saying, look at how awful they are. I am part of humanity. And you are too. It says, you therefore are no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. We don't need God to condemn us. Right? We always think that God has His moral standard, and He does, and it's super high. But which of us has lived up to our own expectations? Who's lived according to our, even our own ethics, as broken as they are, and have lived a perfect life? I mean, even this morning, I was in a sour mood. I was in a really, I woke up, I didn't want to, I was just frustrated, and I was driving here, and a turkey dropped out in front of me when I was driving, right? And I cursed it, and it was not the turkey's fault. Turkeys are stupid. That's the way they're created, right? But I was all angry and all this kind of stuff. Even this morning, I find myself in need of God's grace. I'm so grateful that God doesn't treat me like a turkey. See, the thing is, is the problem isn't out there. I think there are times we get together and, and we get along other people who think like us, just like every other religion or other groups of people do. It must be about what we think, and that's why and so the problem is there. The problem is out there with those awful people who aren't in here like us. And we pass judgment on them and say, well, if they weren't so wicked, their world would be better. The problem is not out there. What this says is the problem is in here. Until we deal with the problem here, we have no business bringing any type of message out there. We have to start at our heart. We are not about culture change. We are about eternity change. We are about heart change. That's what God does. And our hearts are leading us to death. Look at verses 2 through 5. It says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is limited to lead you or is intended to lead you to repentance? They say that we want to follow what we want to do. We want to point our finger at other people and say, well, you're wrong, I'm right. That's what got us into this mess. Christianity begins with the saying, we're all wrong. We don't have the answers, right? None of us. And we need something better. All of us are, are sinful. And in verse 16, 
and you go through this uh, chapter 2, if you really want to feel great about yourself, you can read that. Uh, If you ever think you're righteous, boy, read uh, chapter 2 of Romans. But in verse 16, it says that we're all going to face judgment. It says, this will take place on the day when God judges God's people, secrets through Christ Jesus, as my gospel declares. There's a day coming when there's not going to be the religious pretense. There's not going to be a group of a crowd around you saying, yeah, you're right. It'll be just you and God in God's space, and each one of us will stand before him. Every one of us. In Revelation 20, it talks about that moment. It says every person will stand and give an account and be judged according to what they have done. Not your parents or grandparents or siblings or anybody else, just you and God giving an account for your life. How on earth can we possibly stand? Well, I'll tell you this, in that moment, you can't point to your religion and say, well, I was this. Religion is not going to save you. It's not going to say, oh, that's part of Pastor Aaron's church. I'm sorry, Pastor Aaron's church is going to save you. How we are made right with God by doing right things. Look at verse, uh, uh, verses 12 to 13 of chapter 2. It says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. The thing, there's a great value in faith and religion. But the value is not its saving effect for us. It's good to know truth, what God says is right and wrong. That's what he's talking about, the law. He revealed it to us. Scripture is a great value. But we're not going to be saved by it. We'll be condemned through it. Right? Here's the thing. If you're a lawyer, you know the law really well. But if you're a lawyer and you violate the law, just because you knew what the law was does not get you off. We're not saved because how much we know of Scripture. And we're not lost because of how little we knew Scripture. If you break the law, even if you're ignorant of it, you still are guilty, right? Now, it's better to know the law. We would find lawyers better up because they're probably less likely to violate laws out of ignorance. But all of us have violated the law. See, God gave us religion not to save us. We were already broken. Our moral compasses were already askew. But oftentimes, because we have this self-deception, we can think we are so good and so righteous that we don't look to God. We think somehow that we're going to attain righteousness by doing things or by being part of like this right club. And so God gives us the law not so that we can attain righteousness, but to reveal to us that we've already lost it. It's like going to the doctor when you have a sickness. You know how tragic it is, and we've all heard stories, and maybe some of us have known people, who have gone to the doctor for a checkup, and they finally reveal that they've had this horrible terminal illness, and they've been living with it, but there were no symptoms. Once they find out that they have the illness, now they can receive treatment. That's the purpose of the law. So many of us live in this world, we have this moral infestation of the heart. We, have, we breed immorality through our thoughts and our actions and through our own pride and self-righteousness. And we think we're so good. What a tragedy it would be then to stand before the Lord on that final day, only to have everything that we've done realize that we've, we've gone the wrong direction. The law is good, but we have to use it for the right thing. Breakers. Chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, that includes me. It includes you. If you've ever been at a point in your life where self-righteousness has led you to the point to think that you somehow are better than other people, that we have some type of moral high ground to point our finger down at the rest of the world and say, you guys better shape up. This reminds us that no, I am not righteous. I'm broken. Fundamentally, profoundly broken. So are you. We all are. On our own, we have created a horrible, horrible broken world. And on our own, we create horrible broken lives. We need something different. Religion is just there to make us aware of our guilt. And that's why in verse 20, there it says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's its purpose. And we must remember its purpose, right? If you're driving in your car on a real dark night and your car breaks down, right? No moon out or anything like that. Your car breaks down. You pull over the side of the road. Right? You want to know what's wrong with your car, and so you grab a flashlight. So you can go in, open the hood, and see what's wrong. That's what the law thing to have the flashlight. But the flashlight is not a mechanic. It can tell us what's wrong, but it can't fix the problem. And so we say this with religion. Religion is oftentimes a flashlight. It reveals to us how far, far short we've fallen. Not to make us feel bad, but to make us aware of where we actually are. And there's a mercy and a grace in that. That we're all lawbreakers, we're all, we're all guilty. And so what do we do with that? Well, I would say this, as we look at the mess our morality has made, we, we say, we find in, in Scripture that, that I am not perfect, and does the truth of life bear that out? Yeah. This is why we need civil laws, isn't it? Because we can't trust people to do what is right. That's why we hire security guards and have security cameras. Right? We have to contain ourselves, the beasts that we are. And that's what religion does. It helps with some of that. A lot of times people go to religion to receive some type of, of external morality. The problem is it is just like a cage. It just keeps us from reacting out the things that we have inside that we would do. That's what it's about. That's what moral laws is. That's what civil laws are all about. But the problem with all of those is that even though it cages us, it limits our capacity to do evil, it doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change the beast. Think about how people, in the name of righteousness, in the name of self-righteousness, the name of, of we have the, the higher moral ground, how many wars have been fought in the name of that? We're going to do what we know is right and impose our right will over you. How many times have we had murder? committed, where somebody was just so angry they were going to inflict vindication on another person. How about broken homes? How many homes are divided and destroyed because you have different people who see things very different and both think they hold the higher moral ground? How about hatred? In our society, we're pretty polarized, aren't we? I, I mean, 
Facebook is a great place to want to go hate somebody. If you, if you really think that you can go through this world and not hate people, just get on a Facebook for a while and you'll see people that see the world very different than you. And it's very easy how we become partisan. And we get into our camps and then we hate one another because you don't see the world like me as though I'm God. We have the loss of identity. We forget who we are. We, we've messed up this world so badly because we thought that we were God, that we would know what is right, and then we do these religious things and hem ourselves in and think, well, because I'm more hemmed than you, then I'm better than you. Look at the difference that even in our own lives, that the, the personal sins have made in our own lives. Have any of you lost friendships or done something you regret? Have hurt people that we've loved? Every single one of us is capa- has the capacity for great wickedness. We also have the capacity to do a lot of great good things because we're made in the image of God. But every one of us has done things that hurts. And so every one of us carries around things, the, the scars from this brokenness, things like guilt, which is just a warning light that God has given us for the soul that says something's wrong, something needs to be fixed. And then the baggage that the enemy throws on top of us called shame, which is not from God. You did this and therefore you are unlovable. Pain. The regret, remorse, brokenness. Religion can't save us. Even if you go outside of religion, formal religion, you're going to find a group of secular ethics, which is just another form of religion. Just do these things. Believe what we tell you is right, okay? And and therefore, then you'll be fine. It's not going to save you. When you stand before God Almighty, our ethics are not going to be a defense to us. In fact, our own tongues will will condemn us. And so on our own, I would say it's pretty easy to see that we're pretty hopeless. It's bad news. Bad news. But we're not hopeless. Remember that the faith is built upon good news. The reason that we're not hopeless is because we're not alone. This is where it gets to where our good news begins, is that Jesus is the difference maker. He's the one that makes the difference for us. It is what who Christ is and what he has done that makes the difference know that our life is not just in fear, waiting judgment that we deserve. In chapter 3, verse 21, one of the happiest passages in all of Scripture, listen to this. It says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The gospel. Good news. You don't have to earn your righteousness. What is the gospel? You hear the word a lot. Well, let's, let's go through it. Let's break it down real fast. This is the good news that the all of faith is based upon. It begins with this. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. That's good news. If it was up to you, can you imagine the weight of your own salvation on your own shoulders? For the majority of people in the world, that's not something they have to imagine. They live their life according to this crazy thought that if faith do enough good works, hopefully will outweigh the bad works. That's a lot of weight. Or they believe that they've got to be somehow better than most. So it's a moral competition. I'm going to get into the kingdom by making sure you don't. 
But this is not how righteousness works. When you go to court, they don't line you up. The judge lines you up in order of most guilty to least guilty. That's not how it works, right? He doesn't line you up and says, you're definitely guilty. You're the most guilty of the biggest crime, and you're the least guilty of like the smallest crime. And then halfway through or something says, well, right about here, does it? No, and it's not like this either. Well, you go before the judge and he says, well, you committed this crime at tax season. Let's just say we committed tax fraud or something. You committed tax fraud. He says, yeah, I did. But I paid my taxes all the rest of the years of my life, right? I've been really good and I buy all the other things. I go to a full stop at all stoplights. You know, I do all these other good things. I abide tons of laws. The number of laws that I obey far outweighs the one law that I didn't. That's not how it works. He says, did you violate the law? We can't out righteous the sins that we have committed. Just as you can't out obey the crimes you have committed. And so we say that it's not about me is a huge thing because the reality is we've all committed a crime. We all would admit to that. Every one of us in this room has lied. Every one of us in our room, in this room, has committed hatred against another sins that we can stack onto that. We don't even need God to to judge us, we would judge ourselves. And therefore, I can't save myself. That's why the good news starts with not me. I'm powerless to change me, but God can do something. Jesus can do something I can't. It's about Jesus. This gives us the starting point, not to stand on a holy hill and point down at other people and say, you sinner. It says to this, I have found something bigger, something better than me. It's not about me. What is it about? What did Jesus do? We are saved by God's grace through faith. Salvation doesn't come by works, right? We even just read that. It's not about doing enough good things. It's not about following enough rules to climb the the religious ladder. I'm saved. I am saved by God, not by me. The burden is off. And it's His grace. Grace is unearned. It's unmerited. That's why it's grace. God saved me not because I deserve it. In fact, he saved me precisely because I don't deserve it. Why would he do that? What's the motivation that God has given? Love. He actually loves you. He actually loves me. That God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Love. God actually wants to be close to you. He cares for you. Think how amazing that is. He knew you were a criminal, and God was compelled not to, even though he's just, he was compelled not to see you face justice. Because he cares for you, he has compassion upon us. Ephesians 2, not so that none of us boast, so none of us walk around like peacocks, all prideful. But it's through faith. It's in trusting that God has given me this. And that's what faith is, trusting what cannot be proven. And just as I'm saved by God's grace through faith, I can also have faith that I'm not saved, but it would also be faith. How do you prove that Jesus does or does not save me? We have reason to believe that Jesus saves us. And faith is trusting that Jesus did. But my faith doesn't just save me. I'm not saved by faith. I'm saved by God's grace through faith. God is the one who saves me. Faith is the means by which I accept that gift. Now, my faith has got to be in something. It has to be in Jesus Christ 
as our Lord, it means He's God and our Savior. I can't just say, well, I believe that I'm going to be saved. I can't say I'm going to believe that I'm going to do good enough things to be saved. My faith has to be placed in the right thing. And that faith must be in Scripture in Christ Jesus, the actual person who lived on this earth as two things. Lord, that means God, and Savior. And this is why. In uh, what, Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. It's a big deal, isn't it? How many lives do you have? One. I, I got one life. Right? That's what God gave me. That's all I have. And the cost of sin is death. And death is basically when you lose your life. So when I sinned, I forfeit the one life that God has given me. That's all I have. I have nothing left. The problem is, though, is not only that, that I would lose my own personal life, but I've sinned more than once. If the cost of sin is death, I mean, even today I wouldn't be able... If you were a perfect human being, and you said you lived a perfect life, and you said, I love Aaron, and you said to God, I will pay the price for Aaron's sin. And you came and you, and you gave your life for mine to pay the price for my sin, I would still be condemned because I've sinned more than once. You only have one life to give. You could only pay for one sin. You couldn't save me. If Jesus was just a man, he couldn't save one person, much less everybody. The difference between Jesus and humanity is that Jesus is also God. And God has infinite life which means that he has the capacity, he has the ability to pay for not just one sin, but for infinite sins. And I know I've sinned a lot, but I haven't come close to that. That's why when Jesus sins for all people for all time, the price was paid. But the amazing thing about infinite is that if you subtract out all the finite numbers of sins that people have committed, how much do you still have? Infinite. Which is why when Jesus died... He must have raised also from the grave. Only God could do that. He paid for all of our sins, and then he got his change back. And he rose again as infinite life as he ever was. We must trust that Jesus is God. If he was just a moral teacher, if he was just a willing sacrifice, just a man, he'd be impossible for him to save even one person. But as God, he has the capacity to save all of us, to pay for all of my sins, past, present, future, and for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who would say, yes, please add mine to your tab, paid for. We must trust that Jesus is God. The evidence is there. The resurrection is proof of it. Only God could pay for all those sins and still get infinite life back. But the second thing, I've got to trust that he's my Savior, my Savior, not just the Savior of other people, mine. I have to accept his salvation. It's like this. You go to lunch after we have this wonderful sermon, and you're going to go there and you're going to talk about what a great sermon it was. You're going to sit down, you're going to have lunch. You're sitting there at your table, and some guy walks into the restaurant and says, I will pay for anybody's, all your lunches, right? Here's my credit card. He tells the, the owner of the restaurant, I'm going to pay for everybody's lunches. Boom. Anybody who wants their lunches paid, I will pay for it, right? Which would be awesome. Well, you might be over the corner and say, well, I don't want him to pay for my lunch. Well, guess what? It's not legal or right for him to pay for your lunch. You would still be stuck with your own bill. Now, he could have paid for everything. If you accept it, you say, yes, by faith, I'm going to trust this dude's paying for my lunch. And you accept it, then you get a free lunch. Yay! 
This is not a foreign or strange concept that God did for us. This is why we need faith. We need to accept it. Say, God paid this for me. For me, he's got to be my savior. Will you let Christ pay for your sins? But here's the thing. When saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, oftentimes we end the gospel there, but that's a shame. Because that's good news, but that's not gr- like really good news. Because that means that I'm left as a broken person I was. But as the gospel continues in Scripture, it says, as we obey Him, He transforms us from the inside out. This is the call of, of, of discipleship. This is why in Scripture it says we have been saved for good works, not by good works, right? This is where it talks about in Scripture that we are transformed, that metamorphosis, the transformation of our mind and our life. This is where it talks about we get the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit then of the Holy Spirit, right? That God starts moving into me and does what the law never could, law unto my heart. So I do not need the law. I don't need God to tell me don't lie because from the inside, he makes me what I never could have been. He makes me a truth teller. I don't need laws to say, guess what? Don't murder people because from the inside, he changes me to be a person that actually loves others and is compassionate. I don't need laws to tell me, Aaron, don't lust because he changes me from the inside from a person that was depraved to a person of purity. God changes me so that way I don't need the cage. I can live a life of righteousness without these bumpers all around me saying, don't, don't, don't. I never would once I'm transformed. This is good news. This is the power of the gospel alive in God's people where it does, it's the proof that God is with us. It is the evidence of your salvation. That's what it talks about in scripture. This is part of it. We are saved by God's grace, but not just to be saved, but to be changed. But even this isn't enough. As good as this is, as great of good of news is it that God transforms me. It doesn't stop with me because remember that top line, it's not about me. See, the last part of the gospel, which I think is the most exciting, is this. It says this. It says that we can be a blessing to others. God saves us and transforms us. But if it was just about your transformation, he would have zapped you to heaven the moment you express faith. Why go through the rest of this life having God work that salvation in you? Have it work out with fear and trembling, right? All of this change and all the hard work and the suffering and all that when he could just, you die and you get a new body, a new brain, all that kind of stuff and that your moral compass is fixed, right? There's gonna be a day that we will be perfected. Well, he could do that to any of us any moment. Why would he allow us to stay here? Because of transformation, he's proving his power and his mercy and his goodness in us. We're the evidence to a world that is lost and broken, that there is purpose in this life. There is hope. We are not alone. And that God transforms and he can change anybody. He changes us so that we can be his agents of healing in a broken world. He changes us so that we could be his spokesman of love in a world that needs it so desperately. He says to us, his followers, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to forgive people, not because they deserve it, In fact, precisely because they don't. You show grace because you've been shown grace. He says, I want you to be a kind of person that's going to go and love people who don't love you back. In fact, I want you to, because I make enemies my children. We get to express the transformation that God is building into us into a world that needs it so badly. To introduce this world to a whole different way of living. 
a way of living that's not caged. It's not a way that we have the weight of the world on our shoulders. It's a way of love, a way that we have been accepted and so we can accept others. It's a way of forgiveness so we can forgive others, a way of, of living boldly and freely in this world. As it says in Scripture, we have been set free for freedom. That's good news. Our faith does make a difference. And because of this, we live with purpose. As long as I draw breath in this world, God is transforming me. As long as I'm following him and trusting him and saying, God, your way, not mine. And there are lots of times when God's moral compass is different than mine. And I have to say, God, this doesn't make sense to me, but until it does, I'm going to follow you. Your ways are right. They are loving and they are good. And as I do that, he transforms me from the inside out. My wife will tell you, I'm very different than she met me at 16. I had a temper that was bad. And I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take it away. And I tried to contain the rage. But God did something in me that I couldn't do for myself. Right? I'm not perfect by a long shot. But that fuse has gotten so much longer. And the explosion has gotten a lot less. Right? And every time, every year, as I walk closer to the Lord, the more he transforms me. Right? There are so many areas in my life that I've seen God change me. This is my testimony. Not just that I was saved, but that he's changing me. And my life, the redemption that he's brought into my life has been a witness and a, and a blessing to many other people. As so many of yours has been a well. This is the gospel. But how does it work? How is it that God can do this? In uh, verse 25, it says this. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus paid the price. That's why he's the difference maker. He went to the cross and he said, I'm going to pay the penalty for all of your sins so that you can now receive grace by God. You do not have to be judged any longer. There's a righteousness in being perfect. This, this, is you paid your, your, your time. The crime's been paid for. See, God's not corrupt. It's not as though he takes broken Christians and then says, well, we're going to sweep all of your sin under the rug. God himself paid the penalty for all of the depravity that I have. And then he traded place. That's the sacrifice of atonement, right? That, that what he did is that he was perfect. He had the ability to, to, to pay for my crimes. I didn't even have that. And he says, I'll trade places with you, Aaron. And I said, yes, I will accept that. And he did. He, he, did the, he did the time for my crime. And what has been paid for once cannot be paid for again. That would be unjust, wouldn't it? And it said that Jesus, he did this to be just because... In faith, there were people like Moses and David and Noah and all of them who trusted in God, but their crimes had not been paid for yet, and, and they weren't being suffered. They weren't in hell, right, suffering, that God had, had rescued them. Well, to be just, Jesus did need to pay for He couldn't just say an IOU with God forever. He actually had to pay the, <laughs> for their sins, but also just today. He paid for all sins for all people for all time, any who'd receive him. That's what it means. He traded our place. Substitutionary atonement. And because my sin's been paid for, I can't be punished. 
right? It wouldn't be right. So let's go back to the restaurant. Somebody pays for your dinner, right? That nice person comes in, pays for everybody's dinner. You accept it. Then you go to leave. Wouldn't it be wrong if that owner came back to you and said, well, you have to pay for your dinner too? That would be unjust. It's already been paid for. The thing, all of us have committed sins. But God, on the day of judgment, when we stand before him in righteousness, will declare us not guilty any longer. Our sins have been paid for. This is the hope that we have. This is why in Revelation 20, it says the day of judgment, when we all stand before God, it says only those whose names are written in the book of life will be saved. Those who have accepted God's amazing gift. But that gift is for anybody who will receive it. Now, Jesus requires a, or justice requires a voluntary substitution. If Jesus came and he died for my sins, but God forced him into it, that'd be murder, wouldn't it? God had to be just. Jesus had to choose to lay down his sins for me. He had to choose to pay for that. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked. (laughs) And so it's important when we read in Scripture, like in John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. He has the authority to lay it down when he wants to and also to take it of love for you. This was his good pleasure to do that. He wanted to. But again, you have to want to receive it. And so how do we receive it? Through faith. And what is faith? Well, it's trusting what can't be proven, but that's kind of nebulous, isn't it? And so Scripture gives us ways to express faith. These things are not faith in and of themselves, but they can be used as expressions. The Bible tells us authorized ways to express our faith so that way we know that our faith has been expressed, that we know that we have faith. And the first one is belief. We express faith in belief. Belief is trusting God with our minds even when we have doubts. And trust me, if you're in Christ, you will have doubts. God is bigger than your brains, and this is but you're going to trust that he actually is your Lord and Savior. It is also through repentance. Repentance is following God's way. That's an expression of faith. I believe God is real, and I believe his moral compass is right, so I'm going to follow his way. That is repentance. Not perfect, right? He paid for my sins when I don't do it right, but it's a set of the minds, an expression of faith. Every time I obey God, I am expressing my faith in repentance. Or how about confession? It says that we need to confess with our lips and with our lives. It's identifying with Jesus. It's standing with him, saying, I I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm with him. That's an expression of faith. Well, all of those are great, but all those are ongoing for the rest of our lives. There's never a time when Scripture says, stop believing, stop confessing, stop repenting. Right? All of us need to continue to have those. So what do we do? Well, he gives us another one, which is baptism. Fortunately, it's one time event because that would be awkward if it was every single morning. Right? But in baptism, this, this one-time expression of faith needs to be where I express my faith through belief. I'm trusting God. That's why I'm being baptized. It, it's even despite my doubts, saying, God, yes, I will be baptized. Expression of faith through repentance. I'm obeying what God told me to do. This is something in Scripture he'll, He commands, so I'm going to do it out of repentance. It's through confession. Right? I'm identifying with Jesus. In my death, burial, and resurrection, I'm un- put under the water just like I died, like Christ did, and I'll be raised again. It's an expression of faith. Now, belief, confession, repentance, and baptism do not save anybody. God saves people. It is through faith that he's told us how he wants it expressed. This is how we receive. But you know what? There's one more expression of faith that is so important. That is to be discipled and to build disciples. It's a long-going life of saying, God, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to help others do the same. And this is where the joy comes in. This is where, as we are transformed, we become a blessing to others. 
And so that's why we started this again where Paul writes, he says, that's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then the Jew is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. You want good news? God has eternal life for you. He doesn't require you to follow any kind of thing. He says, trust me. But in trusting him, he will transform you. And there is a better life, an amazing life. So I also want to say, I know a lot of you already are in faith and you say, I know this, but how do we bring this message to our community? We're going to talk about that next week, but I also have a special class next week I want to invite you to. It's called a Difference Maker. Personal evangelism is something as Christians we're told to do. It's something that we want to share out of love, not of obligation. But most of us are terrified by that. We're going to take a couple hours. We're going to talk about in Scripture what does it talk about as how we're supposed to reach our people. You're going to be amazed at uh, how to have conversations and how to introduce folks to, to your experience with God, right? It's called testimony. And we'll talk about how do you share this faith, this great news with those around you. And uh, so if you would like to join me on that, I welcome you. That'll be right here. It's going to be from 5 to 8 at 5.30 to 8 p.m. on uh, this Wednesday, right here. And if you would like to come, I would like to know that because I have some stuff I need to print out for you. And uh, our treasurer makes sure that I don't just print out tons of things. If you're going to be here, I need to know. So on your connection card, if you have one, this is what I want you to do. Is say you're going to join me for that. So if you take your connection card on the back side, there's some next steps. It says, this week I commit to. These are some next steps. Applying your faith, put them to action. And on there, the third one down there is going to, or the fourth one, it says, I'm going to attend Difference Maker. You could just let me know, make sure I have your name and all that, so I'll have your stuff ready for you if you would like to join me on this. But if maybe this Wednesday is not good, or even if, you know, whatever, there's some other steps that you can take as well. I encourage all of us to. The first one is to memorize Romans 6.23. Next week, we're going to talk about how this passage is such a great entryway, it's a great way of having discussion of introducing people to the saving power of God. And so memorize it this week and think about how it applies. Powerful. Or maybe what you want to do is this week could read Romans chapter 1 through 6. Whether you've been a, 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 in a Christian for a long time, or maybe you're wondering about Christianity and saying, is this something for me? This is a powerful thing. The first three chapters, yeah, are going to be kind of rough. It reveals kind of where we are. But then it goes to the power of God and the transforming power of God that he has. I encourage you to do that. Also, you might want to pray for three people, especially as we come up to Easter. Those are people that we know in our life that we love who don't know Christ or maybe don't have a church family. Pray for them. Ask God to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel, at least to receive the love of of a Greek church family. And in order to do that, we've also prepared for you an invitation, which is what this is. And it just talks about this, where our church is. It's got a place that they can go on our website if they like that, or at this church. We're starting a, uh, a series Say Yes, and we would love to have you join us this Easter. That's all you have to do. So hand them a card. And if they could say yes or no, it's okay. But if you're praying for somebody, we want them to give you a tool so that you can use as well. So that's what's in there uh, for, to empower you to invite your friends. All right, well, you have commitments to make. I hope that you've made those. There's also on there a place on your connection card to write your prayer requests. Please write those down. And in second, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, please put your tithes as well as your commitments into the offering basket. And uh, let's pray for them. We want to have God bless our worship so that it blesses others. Let's, let's pray for those things. Father God, thank you for your goodness and for the love of Christ that saves us, that he is the difference maker for us, that he takes depraved people like us and makes us saints. You've taken those of us who were selfish and have trained us in, in Christ and that it's not about us and that we can actually love others. 
So help us as a church, Father, to grow in that kind of love. To know your love, Father, to, to grow in that love, to show and to share your love with other people, Father. To help us to do that in a way that represents you well. But this, this series and this Easter, as we, we go there, Father, I pray that your gospel would penetrate every corner of this community, that every person who lives here would be free from the lie that they don't have a place, that there is no hope. That is not true. You love everyone. And so, Father, help us to reach our community in that love. Lord, we've made commitments today. Help us to keep those, not out of a legalism, but, Father, as a way of repentance, a way of following and inviting you into our lives. Please come. Transform us in the process. Take our gifts and our tithes, our offerings as well, Father. Acts of worship, putting you at center of our life. I pray that you would bless those, multiply them for the use of of magnifying your fame and the incredible message of, of the gospel. We pray that in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.